How you doing, buddy? How's everything? It's been a long time since we since we last spoke. It's been a long time. It's been a very long time. I, I, I remember that day in Central Park in 2008. It was like the first week of June 2008. Yeah. Um, Brandon J. It, it feels like a lifetime ago. I think the, uh, in fact, nothing says lifetime ago more than the fact that the Giants were uh, the defending Super Bowl champions. It's kind of crazy. That was back when Brandon Jacobs Brandon Jacobs was good. So that was, that was a long time ago. But yeah. Yeah. Anyway, listen, Me you know, too. thanks for thanks for joining us. Um I'm gonna do a little intro for the few people who might not know who you are, if that's okay. <laughs> what are the odds? Exactly. Um so we're lucky to have uh, Jeremy Schaap today with us. Um for those of you who don't know, I, I bet there's probably not too many uh, Jeremy's one of the most well-recognized ESPN figures, longest tenure, uh, been around the longest, been on some of the most important, um, you know, things that they do. Uh, as a little background, he's also a regular contributor to Nightline and ABC World News Tonight. Uh, he's published in Sports Illustrated, ESPN, the magazine, Time, Parade, the Wall Street Journal, as well as the New York Times. Uh, he's basically covered every single sporting event in the world. I'm not going to read you the list because it's basically every single sporting event, but everything from the Olympics to the World Cup to the Super Bowl to the World Series to tennis, basketball, Final Four. Uh, Jeremy's done it all. Uh, on top of that, he's author of numerous books, uh, including The Greatest Upset in Boxing History, which is a New York Times bestseller. Uh, he's director of 42 to 1, which was an acclaimed 30 for 30 documentary about Buster Douglas when he beat Mike Tyson, um, which was a huge event. Uh, and besides being just an authority in sports, I think what's made Jeremy such a world-renowned figure, uh, it basically is his view on the intersection of sports and society, which is such a critical aspect uh, of our culture. And he's done a great job analyzing that. So I'm really happy to have him here today. Uh, joining us talking about American sports and how it's so important for the American society. So again, Jeremy, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank awesome. you, Rick. Um, well, we'll just start by saying, you know, sports are are so popular here in the U.S., uh, even more so than, than, than most other civilized countries. Why do you think that is? What leads to the incredible popularity of sports in this country? Well, we love sports. Um, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but but I'm not sure if I will, you know, entirely agree with um, uh, with your conceit because I've been all over the world. I've covered a bunch of World Cups and Olympics and Euro over the world, and and that passion for sports is really universal. Um, I'm not sure that we are more passionate here in the United States than we are in other places. We are passionate. Um, I don't know if it rises to a higher level or not. I'll tell you this, uh, having been at um, a World Cup final in Paris in 1998, when uh, France was playing to win its first World Cup ever on, on, uh, on French soil at the Stade de France in Saint-Denis, just outside of Paris, um, the passion I saw that night in Paris, um, in terms of the whole country, at least there I saw the whole city, but you can see the whole country wrapped up in that moment, um, covering the World Cup in Brazil in 2014. Uh, you know, you, I remember walking through the streets of Sao Paulo when Brazil was playing, 
and uh, everything was shut down. I mean, everything was shut down in a way that, you know, you don't see in sports events here. Norway, the Winter Olympics in 1994, um, you know, the passion uh, in, in that culture, in that country for cross-country skiing, you know, not something Americans typically get very excited about, you know, thousands of people lining the course for the big races and all that kind of stuff. Sports is universal. And, you know, it, it takes different forms to passion in different places. Um, you know, one thing that, that um, uh, you know, th there have been certainly exceptions to this rule uh, in the U.S., but sometimes the violence we see associated with sports events in other parts of the world is, is really frightening. And, you know, stories, you know, the, the hooligan phenomenon, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, certainly there, there have been incidents here, but the prevalence of it in some other societies at certain points in time, uh, you know, it, and it's not really about sports. It's about something else, but it's around sports. So here we love sports. You know, there's there's certainly the tribal aspect of it. You know, this is our team. This is our town. This is our university that we support, you know whether you're, you know, a Giants fan or an Ohio State fan, whatever you're a fan of, you know, you grow up with it and it becomes part of your identity in a way. Um, and so there, there is that. And there's, you know, in a big, big country like this, obviously, with more than 300 million people, something that uh, puts us into these smaller, more manageable groups of loyalties and a shared history. I think there's there's an attraction there. But sometimes I think we also lose sight of the fact that we love sports because sports are just great. You know, it, it's fun to watch. Um, the physical nature of what we're seeing, the, the beauty of that, um, the impressive nature of it, all of those things, whatever you're watching, whether it's a soccer game or it's gymnastics or, you know, it's track and field, um, there is beauty in, you know, what we call uh, the cliche poetry in motion, right? And so sports is something, look, as long as there have been people, right, there have been sports, you know, at the very beginning, uh, you know, there, there were races and feats of strength competitions and, and wrestling and those kinds of things. And, and they've developed in various more organized different forms over the millennia. But, but sport and that desire to compete and to express oneself physically in that way, I think is pretty universal. Now, you talk about um, forming that identity. And I think in the U.S., because there's not an overarching, um, you know, like religion or any kind of ethnic overarching quality, sports, in particular football and baseball, have helped us form that identity. Did you just, yeah, did you hear that? You there? I, I did, yeah. I got the, like, low power signal on my phone, so, like... Went out for a second, but we're okay. You were saying football and baseball. Yeah. Um, How have football and baseball helped the U.S. form an identity, whereas other countries have an overarching religion, an overarching culture, overarching ethnicity? In the U.S., it's such a melting pot that sports have definitely helped form an identity for our culture. Yeah, I, I, I think I think there is um, I think there is truth in that, and I think. Um, you know, baseball is the national pastime going back to the mid-19th century, um, did that. And, and sports is a place, um, you, know, um, uh, you know, where we've seen progress 
in terms of um, race relations, um, the integration of sports, um, you know, which took a long, long time, the effect that had on society as a whole. I did a piece recently, Rick, about uh, the significance of a football game that was played just 50 years ago in Birmingham, Alabama, when USC came to Birmingham, came to Legion Field to play Bear Bryant's Crimson Tide, and um, which was still an all-white team uh, playing on the field that night for Alabama, and, and a team that was a third African-American from USC coming down there, uh, and especially one player, Sam Cunningham, uh, his excellence in a way um, forcing change uh, upon Alabama football and SEC football, although other teams had been integrated up to that point. And, and, and many people have said over the years, including, including people I interviewed for this piece, how, how you know, that game changed the landscape um, uh, in the South in more ways than just in sports. And so sports can bring us together. It can also at times divide us, of course. Um, but but sports is both a mirror to and a microcosm of our society. And, you know, we also see uh, through sports, um, uh, you know, we, we see immigrant communities in this country integrated into society in a different way, assimilated into society in a different way. When we talk about people coming from Southern Europe or Jews from Eastern Europe, you know, getting into boxing at the turn of the 20th century and the great fighters who came from the Irish communities and the Italian communities and the Jewish communities and the Slovak communities on and on, you know, sport was a way to rise up in society. Um, and, and to assimilate and, and your fandom, uh, you know, I come from a family, people, a couple of generations back all from Brooklyn. Right. And um, some of them all Jewish, but some of them Jews who had been here for generations, some who had just gotten here, but they were all Dodgers fans. And that brought t them together and, uh, and, and connected them to people. Uh, you know, other people who were Dodgers fans who weren't from their communities necessarily. So it, there is that element as well. And, and I think um, sports is just such a big part of the fabric of our society in so many ways that you can't you can't disconnect it from the larger story. In some ways, you know, it, it's integral to the story. Yeah, I mean, and you were talking about change, which is so important and really pushing the envelope. And I would say that athletes in this country are, are really such role models. And how important do you think it is that athletes stand up and speak about what they believe in? You know, racial change, societal change, having athletes as role models, in my opinion, is critical and having them voice their opinion because they have such an avenue to force change. Well, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I, you know, I, I wrote a book about Jesse Owens, you know, and Jesse Owens you know, is a hero for what he did athletically. Jesse Owens is, it's all, it's not just about what the athletic achievement was winning four gold medals in Berlin in 1936, but against the backdrop, uh, not just, um, you know, competing in Hitler's Berlin in 1936, a few months after the Nuremberg laws go into effect. You know, he was also a second-class citizen here in the United States. And Jesse Owens was one of the first African-American sports heroes um, that white Americans were rooting for as well. Remember, this is at a time when baseball is segregated. Uh, the NFL is segregated. Um, 
Um, there is no NBA yet. Um, you know, the, you know, college football is still largely, though not entirely, segregated. Jesse Owens, you know, he makes a difference. Um, it, it, you know, basically through the example of his excellence. Um, but you talk about Jackie Robinson, um, what he did, uh, the importance of that, and then you get to a more, you get to an activist generation in the '60s, Bill Russell and Muhammad Ali. You, you know, my dad, um, so he was born in 1934. And he, you know, the most important figure in sports by far uh, in the time that he was alive covering sports in the second half of the 20th century was Muhammad Ali. And he was very close to Ali. You know, Ali made a difference. He stood for things. You might not have agreed with him, but he stood for things and he took stands. Many of them, of course, unpopular. Many of them that, you know, eventually he would soften his positions on. But the people that my father admired most of all the people he covered in sports all those decades were probably Muhammad Ali and Arthur Ashe and Billy Jean King, who each in their own way stood for much more than excellence as an athlete, but made a difference. And, and we're seeing over the course of the last several years, I, I, I'd say really the last five or six years, a new era of athlete engagement in larger societal issues, which for a long time, um, you know, we didn't see as much of, wasn't as prevalent. Uh, and it's really obviously um, accelerated in the last few years. And, and I wrote a piece, I've been working on a piece the last few days that I guess will air on election day, which is about, you know, the incredible engagement from the sports world in this election season and what's been going on. Now, um, you know, athletes are speaking up, speaking out in ways we've never, I wouldn't say we've never seen before, um, but, but in a way we haven't seen in a long time. Yeah, and I think looking at that, you know, if you want to know how important sports are in this country, you know, I wanted to talk to you about that void that existed during COVID. You know, COVID affected every single aspect of our lives. Yeah. And there was a there was a several month period where there were no sports in this country, which is something that we've never seen before. How tough was that on this country? You know, <laughs> You know, I, it, it's hard for me to say. I mean, it, it, it was hard. I, I mean, I remember when the NFL draft came around at the end of April after, you know, we were, we were kind of like, I guess at that point, um, late in the second month or midway through the second month of the pandemic here in the U.S. And having just the NFL draft one night, it felt like a gift, right? Something... Mm -hmm something else to think about, something else to talk about. Um, but of course it took a while for the games themselves to come back and it was a weird void. I, I live in the Northeast, I live in New York suburbs in Connecticut. And, you know, um, the crisis was so acute here at that time. Um, you know, I'm not, I can't say that like, you know, each night I was thinking to myself, boy, I wish I had an NBA game or an NHL game to watch. But after a while, you just kind of notice, like, this is a part of our life. This is something we do all, especially me. I mean, it's, you know, it's our business, uh, the business in which I'm in, the industry in which I'm in. And I have found in my lifetime, um, whatever a personal crisis, um, personal adversity, what it is, I, I go back to sports. And I like to watch sports in those moments. And I find comfort in it. And I, I know that I'm far from the only one. Yeah, I mean, I think what you said is that sports provide a safe haven for a lot of us. Uh, it's, it's, it's a way to kind of be distracted 
amidst all the chaos that's going on with COVID. And you could see that, that when sports started to come back and now, you know, we have the NBA, we have NFL, we have college football, there's definitely a rise in the overall attitude of the population. But even with that, there's definitely people who think that sports should not be happening, that the mm -hmm. risks of transmitting the virus amongst players, amongst spectators outweighs the benefits. I personally disagree. Uh, what's your take on the importance of getting safe sports back here in the U.S. as opposed to continuing a shutdown? Well, well, that's it, right? It's about safety. It's about doing it the right way. It's about um, it's about the right protocols. And, and, you know, hosting these outside line segments that we do, myself and Ryan Smith as the anchors five days a week on SportsCenter, we talk about these issues constantly and have health experts on constantly. Like, and the question is, where is the line? Where is safety? What, what constitutes acceptable risk? And, you know, a lot of it uh, shifts based on, of course, what is happening uh, with the pandemic, generally speaking. You know, if, you know, if transmission rates are under control and you're trending in the right direction, it's obviously a very different dynamic, a very different paradigm for, say, sports than if you're in a moment uh, like this where um, transmission rates are exploding, right? And in the Power Five conferences, you know, it's confusing. They're making different decisions. Uh, you know, the, the Pac-12 is saying, no, we're not playing. Um, you know, the, the SEC is saying we are playing. The Big Ten saying we're not playing, but now we are playing. And, you know, it, it shifts based on availability. We had, um, it, was kind of, it was an honor a couple of months ago um, to have on the show one day, I interviewed Harold Barmas the Nobel Prize winner, uh, who used to run um, the, the NIH. And we talked about this, you know, and I asked him, you know, what sport is safe? What he says, look, it's shifting. You have to, you have to ask yourself, what is acceptable risk? It's different with colleges too, right? Because that's not, you know, they are adults, but they're not being paid. They're not professionals. It's a different dynamic than a professional athlete saying, all right, these, these are the risks as I know them and I'm accepting them and I'm signing off or I'm opting out as many have done as well. Um, but anyway, we were talking to Harold Vormis. He's a big tennis guy. And he said, you know, I'm a tennis guy, you know, to me, tennis, you know, seems obviously safer. Golf seems safer. Um, you, you know, it, it, you know, it's about um, the availability of testing. It's about the seriousness of the protocols being followed. I mean, you saw, you know, what happened in, in Tennessee with the Titans and the NFL investigation about the protocols. If you're not going to follow the rules, you can't do it, right? Um, you know, and then, you know, we had a piece on a few weeks ago about, a few weeks ago about Alabama football and just how carefully it seemed they were doing everything and the incredible uh, amount of resources that were being dedicated, which is another question as well, to something like keeping football going. And then Nick Saban test positive. Now, I don't know if that ended up being, I know, I know that he then tested negative again quickly thereafter. I don't know if it was finally determined that was a false positive. Whatever it is, these are very complicated questions with a million different permutations. And, and, and what's clear is, you know, putting people together in an enclosed space, you know, like an arena, uh, you know, that just, that can't be done now. So look what the NHL and the NBA did. You know, they pulled off those bubbles and the WNBA with remarkable success. I mean, do you think a bubble, I mean, that's obviously not possible in terms of football and the NFL, but do you think, what about college basketball? What about other, other large sporting events? 
should people be pushing for a bubble? It's so difficult to do. I don't know. I mean, I you know, I don't, look, I mean, it's difficult to do, but that's a separate question from whether it's the right thing to do. And we did see it pulled off, you know, in, in Bradenton and in Orlando and up in Canada and Toronto and Calgary and, and Edmonton. Um, you know, it, it, you know, we're talking about, um, frankly, a life and death issue. And and um, these are tough to questions, you know, and the question is, again, you know, where do we draw the line? What constitutes acceptable risk? What are the things we're going to continue to do? and beyond even through the pandemic and and you know the experts you know the harold Barmases and um uh those you know and, and the anthony fauci's are the people who have to answer those questions yeah you know i mean like you were saying safety obviously is the number one priority but a close second is the economic repercussions of not having sports or having sports pulled back and that's something that i want to get into. big business I mean, it's a huge business. Talk about how sports are so intertwined with the U.S. economy overall. Well, I, I, I'm no economist. I don't work for CNBC. I, I don't, you know, at my fingertips, I don't have those numbers, Rick, which is no surprise to you. Um, but it is, you know, it, it's in terms of the overall economy, GDP, I don't know. But in terms of you go to a town, you go someplace like College Station, Texas, you know, in, in in football season, I know what the impact is when you don't have football. Um, you know, you go to Lincoln, Nebraska, you know, football season. It's, it's not, you know, it's not just about the people working in the athletic department, although there have been big cuts in these athletic departments as well. Uh, you know, it's about the local community too, the, the restaurant owners, the bar owners, the hotel owners, you know, but, you know, these are all considerations, you know, and these are real lives being affected. And so that's why the calculus, of course, is so complicated when, when you're making these decisions. Yeah. And, you know, staying, staying with the economic issue, I mean, athletes make an insane amount of money, at least the top ones do. So, for example, you know, Pat Mahomes, arguably the best quarterback in football, just signed the largest contract um, in history, half a billion dollars. Um, Worth every and there cent. Are, huh? He's worth that, every cent. No, exactly. So I want to talk to you about that because because a lot of people have an issue with that. They want to know how does a quarterback make so much money when doctors or lawyers or teachers or scientists make a fraction of that? Now, listen, I mean, you know, like I'm on your side. I think he's worth every single penny. But just give me your take. How do you explain that discrepancy where a quarterback makes half a billion dollars and a teacher makes you know, less than a hundred thousand. Well, I, I can explain it. I'm not going to justify it, but okay. it's easily explained. It's supply and demand, right? I mean, um, that's the way, you know, that's why Tom Cruise gets $20 million per movie, right? That's why uh, Alex Rodriguez signed a contract for $252 million 20 years ago, because there was someone willing to pay it. And because, you know, the, the economic um, calculations that were made behind that decision, uh, you know, the, the ownership in that case, we're getting to, you know, specifics, Tom Hicks of the Texas Rangers said, I'm going to, I'm going to make more money off of, um, I, I'm going to create profit 
from paying Alex Rodriguez this much money. Like, it, it's, it's a huge pool of money and it keeps getting bigger. And in some ways, sports properties, the big ones, um, keep getting more valuable in our kind of splintered mass culture, right? Because sports are some of the last big tent events where you can draw people and you can, you can get you can get tens of millions of people watching. Ratings obviously have been down uh, in some sports uh, this fall, and we can argue about the reasons. I don't, I'm not, you know, there are, there are a lot of different explanations, you know, interest in the election, obviously the pandemic, too much competition, different sports taking place at the same time. But sports are st- still some of the few reliable mass culture events, right? And, and and that's what it's about. So there are TV dollars, and then there are you know uh, stadium experience dollars, and and you know trust me, they're they're paying these huge contracts, right? In the big sports, the owners aren't going broke, right? <laughs> you know they're you know and and for a long time, remember before the advent of free agency, let's say in the mid 1970s, you know essentially with the with the ruling in baseball after Kurt Flood challenged the system and was dis- defeated the Supreme Court. And then um, I think it was Peter Seitz was the arbitrator who ruled in favor of Messersmith and McNally ushering in the age, the age of free agency. Um, the Suddenly the playing field after a hundred years was level or getting more level. But for a hundred years, players had no leverage in all these sports, you know, and they were, they were um, mostly terrifically underpaid um you know it's 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 i'm i'm not uh adam smith but um it's market demand right yeah so just simple numbers basically if if people were paying x amount of dollars to watch a scientist or a doctor or a teacher that would end up being more reimbursement so it's a strictly number should we find a better way to of, of course i mean Again, I'm not an economist. I don't know, you know, how how you'd have to change tax policy or anything like that. But um, should uh, should people um, who do these essential jobs get a bigger share of the American pie? Uh, I'm all in favor of that. Um, yeah. You know, but I understand why sports stars, why why Patrick Mahomes gets. You know that big deal. Why Aaron Rodgers is making twenty nine million dollars a year, whatever it is, it's because they're making that money back for their entities and then some. Yeah, it's strictly supply and demand, just like you said. Um, wrapping up here, I just wanted to talk a little bit about non professionals. So they've done a lot of studies looking at the involvement in sports in kids, young adults, even kind of middle aged, and people who play sports are in general healthier less drugs, better education, better jobs. In every single respect, people who played sports are more successful mm. and have better outcomes than people who don't play sports in general. You, you mean How when they were kids we, or as they continue through adult life? I'm sorry? You, you mean they played sports when they were kids or they continue to play through adult they, life? So they started, so, so it can be at, at really any level. They've looked at kids playing sports you know, yeah, I, I saw this doctor did a big study about that at UVM um, and, and how the, the incredibly, the remarkable correlation what you're talking about between positive outcomes and participation in sports. And it, it yeah. seems, yeah, it, it seems clear. And how do you, uh, how do we as a country increase participation in sports? It's very clear that sports 
are correlated with just more positive outcomes in every respect, no matter what the age group. How do we increase you know, participation in sports at every level here? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's a good question. Um, you know, I think we we have to find a way. And my friend Tom Ferry, uh, who works uh, on these issues, the Aspen Institute, he would know more about this, about how, how we increase access, right? Because, you know, I see I live in an affluent suburb in Connecticut, and I see how expensive it is and how few people can afford to, you know, sign up their kids for this or that. Some of these sports are so, so expensive and um, it requires resources. And meanwhile, schools are cutting back. Schools, um, you know, are underfunded, especially for their um, programs for recess and sports and all that stuff. I mean, it's, it's a question of prioritizing resources, right? I mean, we keep coming back to money. You know, what do we value? What are we going to pay for as a society? What are we going to, you know, what are we going to um, take from to give to? And and to me, you know, again, I'm not an expert on it, uh, following youth sports, but I do know that we have to do a better job uh, of emphasizing it, making it available to kids, you know, having, um, you know, PE programs that are more expansive and, and at the same time, at the same time, not professionalizing sports at such a young age that we see in so many places in the world. And, and you know, you know, turning kids who would play everything into one sport athletes because, you know, they want to get a scholarship in 10 years. I understand the motivation, especially when college expenses are so so great but the the specialization i think it's the detriment of a lot of kids and it i think there has to be more joy in it we're just playing yeah well listen jeremy i could talk sports and particularly sports with you pretty much all day um but i know you got other stuff to do um and you're super busy i just want to say thank you for all you do uh mainly tackling all the tough issues in sports you know it's easy to talk about who won the super bowl much tougher to talk about all of the all of the society issues that sports brings with it, uh, and you do an amazing job of that. So thank you for everything you do. Um, you know, keep up the great work, and it was it was great catching up with you, man. It's been a while. It's great seeing you, Rick. And I should say, um, I appreciate the work you do. It's much more important than the work that I do. Thank you. Well, it's all relative. And again, thanks again. Have a great Friday, and and it was a it was a pleasure catching up. Great seeing you, sir. All right, buddy. Take care. Bye bye.